Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. All right, welcome to episode number 32 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today I am talking to Kip Veith, and Kip is the owner of Wildwood Float Trips out of Monticello, Minnesota, and is also the author of The Orvis Guide to Muskies on the Fly, which will be coming out this October. As you may have guessed, Kip came on to walk me through all things musky fly fishing. So if you're like me and fly fishing for muskies is something that's a pretty much a completely foreign concept to you, this will be the perfect episode to kind of give you the 101 information on getting started. So without further ado, here is my chat with Kip Veith. I am joined today by Kip Veith. How are you doing today, Kip? Good, good, very good. And have you been getting out on the water much? Yeah, every day pretty much. I guide uh, throughout the summer probably every day except for um, you know, rain or something like that, but I'm busy from uh, basically opening day, which is second Saturday in May, all the way till November and we get ice. So I'm pretty busy. And so do you get out much fishing per- personally or are you mostly just guiding these days? Uh, I don't fish much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I hear no, that a I, lot. Uh, I live vicariously through my clients basically. So um, I do have a musky weekend that I do with a bunch of friends. And well, last year I didn't throw a cast because I was busy rowing, but, um, and I, I love that as much as fishing, to be honest with you. So it's not that big a deal, but yeah, I get to fish a little bit. I do some bluegill stuff in the spring, um, some trout fishing and then, but once smallmouth season kind of rolls around and then into musky season, it's pretty much, I don't get to fish much. <laughs> I do hear that a lot, but I also hear the other thing you said about, you know, 
getting to fish vicariously through your clients, especially if it's like their first fish or your first species of fish or something like that. Um, it's almost more fun than catching it yourself. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, you know, I wouldn't do it if, it, you know, I've had young guys go, well, you know, I want a guide and I go, do you love to fish? And they go, yeah. And I go, well, then you don't want a guide. <laughs> like you either, you know, you want a guide, you don't want to fish. So. Yeah. And, and guiding ends up being almost more teaching than it is actually fishing or, or fish knowledge at times. It's just showing people a good time and being able to explain yourself well. And, you know, it's a, it's a whole different skill set than just being able to catch fish. Correct. Yeah. It's totally different, actually. I mean, um, you have to be a good angler, I think, to be a good guide, but it, I think that's a smaller part of it than the actual guiding is. So um, at least that's my thoughts on it. Now your company is Wildwood Float Trips? Correct. And so are you all float trips? Do you do any wading as well or, or just floating? Uh, we, we do some Spring Creek stuff um, in the drift list in the spring. Uh, but yeah, basically it's in a drift boat from, like I said, opening weekend in May until ice, so, which is about second weekend in October. can be earlier, can be later. Um, depends on the rivers, I guess. Yeah. And then once it ices up, are you ice fishing or are you kind of taking that time off? I take that time off and I usually, you know, right after musky season ends, I'm duck hunting for the two or three weeks that I have left the duck season. And then, um, yeah, then I pretty much take my time off and, or I work, you know, I had to pick up a part-time job somewhere just to stay kind of busy. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of what I do. Yeah. I heard you recently on the Orvis podcast talking about bluegill fishing. Is that something that, uh, you, you guide for too, or is that just a personal favorite for you to, to go out and chase? As any good guide would say, yeah, it's my personal time, but then it's kind of morphed into guiding for them too a little bit. So uh, I don't do a ton of it. Like I run a big weekend. We do a four-day weekend, bluegill fishing with clients. And then, um, you know, I have a few clients that are really into it, like me that, you know, I've shown it to them and they've, you know, they book every year now for a bluegill trip or two just because it's, you know, a hoot. So, but more of a personal thing than than clients but it's top it's one of my favorite things to do especially here in minnesota with the clear lakes you can see them and it's kind of mini tarpon fishing almost i guess but it's a hoot of fun so as i, I say really... that's not from the drift bow right that's that's a kind of a separate type of trip yeah i mean i you know when i first started i used to just roll my drift boat and around the lake and fish and now i've got a job boat with a little motor on it but i mean you certainly could you know I've only had the John boat for three, four years. So I used to run it with my drift boat. So it was at their small lake. So it was pretty doable. I just say I'm pretty jealous of the, I know the topic you were discussing on Orvis was the, like the trophy bluegills. And that's yeah. just something we don't have much of out here. Um, I can catch bluegills five minutes from my house, but they're all, you know, five to six inches long. And yeah. I'm really jealous of what you have over there. Yeah. It's still good fun, but yeah, I mean, Big bluegills are pretty rare. I mean, they're not, you know, in the pockets, it might have sounded like they were super easy. But if you find a good lake that has them, they're going to be there. But it's, it's kind of finding a lake that has them, I guess, more than anything. Sure. Yeah, I feel like we just don't, we don't get the size um, of those warm water species that you have in the Midwest. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's something about the north and growing big, you know, our deer are bigger, our fish are usually bigger and you know, all that good stuff. I think <laughs> the cold but uh yeah we're, we're pretty blessed it's a pretty cool place there's not too much that we can't fish for in the midwest except for saltwater stuff and we have excellent trout fishing and excellent warm water fishing so it's pretty blessed and to have what we have here 
Yeah, I do think if I, I'm I'm pretty drawn to the Mountain West, but if I didn't live here, I could I could definitely see myself ending up somewhere like Minnesota or Wisconsin, just just based on the outdoor lifestyle that everyone seems to have there and and abundant resources. And I don't know how the crowds are there, but I'm sure that they're probably not as bad as uh, Front Range Denver area is. No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I complain if I see a couple boats a day, you know, and, you know, so I I don't think they're bad. I mean, I think it's the pressure is certainly noticeable you know more noticeable now than it was you know 19 years ago when i started but and i think it has a toll on the fishery i think you know things are tougher um over the years and i think that's kind of the big next big hurdle that all fly anglers and fishermen in general are gonna have to conquer is is pressure and what it does to a a fishery and it's more noticeable in muskies probably than any other fishery in the midwest i mean you know they're they're smart and big for a reason. And I think pressures plays a very big role in that. Now is that, is that kind of becoming more popular? I know fly fishing in general is, I feel like it's been picking up steam in the past couple of years, but have you noticed a deliberate um, or distinct difference in the musky specific um, like oh, fly fishing pressure? By all means. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, if I really wanted to, there's a couple rivers here that probably see more fly pressure than gear f- pressure. Really? So, I really wanted to catch a fish, I think I would throw gear. You know, I would throw a buckwheel or run a sucker minnow or something like that, just because it's something different. They're, they've seen, you know, they see a lot of flies in some of those rivers, more so than any other traditional gear. So in muskies, it's throwing something different and try to get a bite. So, you know, or get them to trigger to eat. And usually something different helps that, you know, because they've seen the same lures over and over again. And, and you see on the lakes around you're really big time i mean they'll follow like this time here in mid-august they're just gonna follow and say i've seen that lure 20 times today i am there's no way i'm gonna eat that thing or if you throw something different at them that they haven't seen or it's new and it's it, it has a tendency to get them to, to go more than your standard silver bladed bucktail or or a for as a fly as a buford or you know just the standard big deer hair head fly i think Something different is always good to good to throw at a muskie. We had a big advantage on that, you know, 10, 15 years ago before it got real, you know, crazy. I mean, it's 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 not crazy, but it's a heck of a lot more people doing it than was, you know, five years ago than it is today. Yeah, just because at that point any fly was something new to them and, and now it's they're kind of getting swamped by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean they've they've seen those, you know, they've seen I've seen a fly. I mean you know, the rivers that I'm talking about that are very popular and, and, and do have great musky populations, but it doesn't take them long to get smart to it. I mean, like you said, a 50-inch fish has probably seen everything that uh, someone can throw at it. And you know, We caught one a couple of years ago on a small little weird fly, and I think that had a lot, well, that had a lot to do with it, but it was, I don't think that fish had moved on a bait all fall. I mean, it was the last day of the season, and you know, it was kind of a weird deal, but you know, you never know. Muskies are weird. Pressure aside, do you um, is there a, a distinct advantage for using gear or flies? Like, um, if you could, if if pressure just weren't an issue, would would gear be significantly more effective than flies, or is it kind of a toss up? Um, it depends on the situation. Um, like in the fall, I mean, I fish muskies 90, 99% of the time from middle of September until ice. I don't mess with them much in the summer just because I'm busy smallmouth fishing. So, um, 
I would say if I really wanted to catch a muskie, I'd fish a live sucker. I mean, that's by far their number one bait in the fall. Uh, that's what they want to eat. And most of my flies kind of mimic a sucker. I fish a lot of spots where, you know, suckers will be, you know, I, I say in my book, follow bait, you'll find the fish. And that's kind of what it is in the, in the, in the fall, especially with red horse suckers here in the Midwest. I mean, it's like the flame yawn for muskies. So. Yeah. So diving into some of the specific fly fishing techniques, um, I guess we, I guess we can mention real quick too, that, um, the reason I'm having you on is that you are the author of a recent book with Orvis, uh, specifically related to musky fly fishing. Um, what was the title of that? Is that the Orvis guide to muskies on the fly? And it comes out, it was, you know, we got COVID. It, I guess is kind of going to be a new word, but, uh, it was supposed to be out July 1st. Now it's October 1st. So looks like everything's good to go. The final edit and everything has been done. So now we just have to print it and get it out. But October 1st, it'll be available and you can pre-order it, I think on Amazon right now. And yeah, so it's going to be, it's kind of a, it's a real basic book. You know, someone like has never, doesn't know where to begin. It just kind of goes through the basic steps of how to do it, what to look for, you know, something about flies, something about water, seasonal movements, all that kind of thing. So it's a, you know, it's a, I always call I call it like the musky fishing one-on-one. So if you, do you have, um, like, just to kind of dive right into that, do you have any specific tips on just if someone wants to pick up a, a rod for muskies, let's say they know how to fly fish, but they are used to uh, your standard trout or maybe have dabbled a little bit in something like bass, um, how does one jump into musky fishing? Like, how different is it from your standard fly fishing that probably a lot of people get started with? It's night and day. It's not really. Really? Yeah, you're not, I mean, you're just lobbing a big chunk of deer of hair. I mean, it's, you know, there's no, it's not pretty, you know, it's, it's <laughs> collar, grind it out. Um, most of my guys will end up water loading their cast at the end of, you know, they'll, they'll throw out a little 15 footer, bring it back, water load it and just fire it, you know. So no real and false casting. There's no fault. There's only one knucklehead that I know and do, and that's Pete from Orvis who can, throw an 80 footer, can throw an 18 inch fly 80 feet and just kind of look at you and smirk. And then I yell at him, but <laughs> yeah, I think I saw him cast a whole fly line in a single, a single, yeah, cast, yeah, so that yeah. doesn't really count. <laughs> it, yeah. And he's like, what is, you know, he's like, you know, 30 feet tall. And you know, my buddies and I joke, if I was six, eight, I could cast like that too. And I'm like, <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I mean, and you don't want to cast that far anyway. I yell at him like, well, what are you going to do if one eats it out there? I mean, your asshole, you know, you're just not going to be able to put a hook in it. So, um, yeah, I mean, a 40 to 50 foot cast is plenty, um, at least on the rivers, on the lakes. It's a different, I fish 99% of the time on rivers, um, just cause I love rivers and most fly guys like rivers better than lakes, I guess, but that's kind of being a snob, I guess, but that's kind of, I, I just love rivers and the drift boat. So that's how I do it. But um, yeah, so 40, 50 foot cast is all you really need. Um, the rod is in the book, I say cast it till you find it. Now, if you're in Colorado and there's not a lot of fly guys that do muskies, it's kind of hard to do that. So, um, and it depends on how many, how big of flies you're going to throw and what you're going to do. But, you know, I'd say anything from 10 to 12. So I'm probably in that more in the 11, 12 range um, on my rods, but we throw some pretty pretty big flies i mean they're they're crazy big and uh so that's that's what i can tell you about picking a rod because it's it's just it's 
it's not a fly rod, it's a tool. I fished with Sean Combs, a rod designer at Orvis one time, and and I brought one of our just broomstick musky sticks and he threw it and he's like, this thing is, I go, it's, you can't, you have to not think of it as a fly rod. It's a tool. It's a means to deliver a big fly. Yeah. Just like kind of chucking it out there. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so then he fished it for a couple hours and, he, and then he picked up a, I had an H2 one piece 12 weight, you know, he goes, Oh, now this is a fly rod, you know? And I'm like, well, of course it is, you know, you designed it, but, uh, you know, and then he cast it and then he got the fly in tight and the thing kind of just didn't have the backbone to it to turn a fly at the boat. Okay, I get it. You know, so it's a, it's kind of a, it's, you know, it's a fine line between just a broomstick and then with guide, guides on it or, a, or an actual fly rod. So um, the new, the, the new one he designed, the clear wire is cheap, but it's pretty good. You know, he kind of used the stuff that he learned casting that stuff and kind of combo plattered it all and tried to get something that was good for everybody but everyone's got their own style and it's hard to you know for me to tell you what fly rod to get when i've never seen you cast and i don't know what you can do with it that type of thing you just need to get out there and try them i guess and it's hard you know if you're especially if you're in somewhere there's not a lot of 11 12 weight musky sticks floating around you know like we're blessed in the midwest every fly shop's got musky gear pretty much yeah, I feel like here you walk in and they've got a selection of, you know, probably tons of three to seven weights or so, um, and then a couple on either end of that, but probably not much in the, uh, like, the outer ranges. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, unless you're going saltwater fishing, you know, might, might have a token 10 in there or something like that. But mm-hmm. And it's probably just, like, a single weight that they're carrying for, for all those people, you know. We're right. gonna we're gonna cover all the saltwater people and maybe the carp people and the pike people with you know maybe a nine or ten weight and and that's what you've got to choose from. Yeah, and I mean you know that's what we used you know fifteen years ago. That's kind of we just made it work you know and it's not and it, it's not to say it can't. Um, it's just you know just like everything else, technology is pretty good and lines have gotten a heck of a lot better and rods have gotten a heck of a lot better. So it, it's it's come a long way. I mean it's it's amazing even small stuff and everything. It's just got so much easier, I think, to learn it than, you know, 30, 40 years ago, whenever I picked it up. So now this might be kind of an ignorant question, but if, if the flies are so large that you're kind of just lobbing them out there, it, I mean, would you be able to fish a musky fly on just a spin rod? I, I have, I, I've done that. Have you? Cause I just feel like if it's See that if heavy, yeah, you might have enough weight to just chuck it out. Yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> I can throw it probably as far as I can throw it with a fly. You know, on my on my like gear rod with the big, you know, uh-huh. uh, Calcutta on it. So what what roughly sized flies are you using for muskies, and are they articulated? Or are they like basically just describe a, a typical musky fly? Well, they range. I mean, you can get them from five to six inches all the way to eighteen. I mean, it's uh, you know, I have guys that are older that throw them, and we throw smaller stuff and. And women, and um, and then I have guys that want to throw the biggest thing they can, you know, instead of throwing a dish rake. So it runs the gamut. Um, and most of my stuff is articulated. Uh, I love a fly that looks like a dying, you know, like sucker, something where you it kicks a little and glides. You know, I don't. You know, a lot of people think that musky fishing you're just ripping it as fast as you can. And I always think it's slower is better than than speed. You know, and I want it to roll and kick and glide and kind of like a walk the dog action only underneath the water. Okay. Now, yeah. and are all the flies pretty much representing fish or are there, are there any other um, types of, you know, amphibians or anything like that that the flies are imitating? 
Uh, in the summer, a lot of guys will throw top water. I mean, right now it's probably top water time, and they'll run a big blockhead or uh, anything that moves a ton of water, and they just no that one they'll rip. They'll just boom, boom, boom. Just boom. trying to elicit some sort of yeah, trying to response. get them to come up and eat it. Now getting a hook in them is a different animal at the top water, but it's very difficult. Now, are you strip setting on these then? Yeah, if you lift the rod, you lose. I mean, that that's kind of what I tell my clients. If you lift your rod up, you're going to lose until you get them buttoned up. So when, when you're fishing these on rivers, then are you are you kind of just casting out to the side of the boat and, you know, stripping it straight back toward you? And I know you said you kind of do a little bit of a walk the dog um, and kind of move it around and make it look injured. But are you are you generally casting it out and pulling it back in? Is there any sort of swing to it? No, there's no swing. I mean, they'll get, you know, they'll get swung in the current a little bit. But no, you're just throwing it up towards the bank or uh, muskies love big wood. They're just big brown shell, basically. Huge, huge, big brown trout, you know, so they, they'll live on wood, they'll live on current breaks and seams, and in the fall, once you find them, they're there all fall. And they do not, you know, they, they've moved in for the fall or their wintering holes, and they don't move much. So if I move a 42-incher on a wood pile on Tuesday, and he just kind of rolls out at it, he, he, he'll be there all winter. Okay, be, so you're going to go back there and try to find that fish yeah, that you didn't get yeah. before. I mean, I've chased fish on logs years or or you know big eddies or seams or you know just spots you find them for i mean a decade i chased one so i mean it's you know they just show up on a certain day and you know uh, the gear guys have always told me that on you know i know when the moon hits this thing in september that that fish was going to move up on that rock bar and i've caught them every year for four years so if you hook them that doesn't change the fact that they're still hanging out there well, no, not usually. I mean, they get smarter. Sure, you know? sure, but it's not gonna like you could catch one in the same the same fish in the same spot, you know, a couple of years apart, and it might still be hanging. Oh yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're okay. not gonna, you know, you might catch them once every year. You know, they're not gonna bite. You know, once you hook them, they're pretty, especially a big fish. You know, I mean, we're talking mid forties to over fifty. Once you hook that fish, it's pretty tough to catch them again that fall okay be there the next year probably unless something happens or whatever but for the most part they're going to be there year after year or if it's not that one it's just a good spot there's going to be there's a reason that fish is there and the food's nearby and they have cover sure so it might just be a kind of a, a musky magnet area yeah yeah that one moves and out another one's going to take its spot yep okay yeah, it's, it's kind of like the head of the pool on a trout you know, you know, that's where the big fish is going to be because they're going to get the first dibs at the, you know, that's kind of how the muskies are too. They're like the big ones are at the, the prime ambush spots and then the smaller ones. And there's not a lot of muskies in the river period. So, you know, usually one big muskie is going to occupy a prime spot and that's going to be it. So if you're, if you're floating down the river, I mean, I know you said you're looking for things like logs, but it's not like there's logs every 10 feet necessarily in the river. It, like if you're floating through a spot that's just kind of, open are you just kind of casting out through that and you know hoping for the best or are you only really targeting those spots that really look like they're going to hold a muskie and, it, and it's kind of pointless to to blindly cast out into open water um i don't i, I wouldn't say it's it's hopeless because they do migrate you know but if it's november 1st here those fish are probably locked in on their spot and, and if i get like i'll cast a grass bank with the deep i mean it's deep and it's got to be deeper in the fall. It has to be deeper water with cover, you know, or a seam, you know, it can't be, you know, two feet 
with the log. It's got to be, you know, six to eight feet deep or, you know, a deeper spot on the river relative to what the normal depth of the river is, I guess. I'm looking for those deep wood spots, those deep, you know, seams and eddies, that type of thing. But we'll still cast to a bank or, you know, thereabouts because they will move, you know, within that area. But like when I get to a spot where I know fish is or, you know, you've moved fish there every year and I've moved them a couple of times without him eating, you know, I go to the client, I need your A game now. Everything's to the boat. You're turning it, you're spinning, you know, you're look behind it, you know, you just have, it's A game time. Okay. So you're not, basically you're not like stopping fishing if you're not in a prime spot, but you're, you may be a little more passive about it versus right. kind of dialing And that's usually when YouTube. they bite. You know, is when you're not. <laughs> sure. Yeah, if it's two feet of water and a big flat, you know, I'm going to blow through it. I'm going to get down to where, you know, they're actually going to be. Uh-huh. It's two feet of water and there's a riffle and they're they're going to be on a tail out on that riffle because that's where the suckers are. And they'll, I've seen them chasing eight, six, eight inches of water, chasing suckers in the summer. You know, so that's kind of cool. It's like shark week. Pretty amazing when it happens. So I don't know if you'll actually know the answer to this, but like, you know, I feel like, you know, a lot of fish, it's it's known that fish like cover, you know, if you ever have a, a lake or a river and there's a log jam, like there, there is probably a fish in that area. But I usually think of it for the smaller fish as being a, a cover from predators. But, you know, I don't really picture muskies having a lot of predators. What causes them to seek out that, that structure? Is it because that's where the prey is or are they seeking cover themselves? Uh, I think they're seeking a little cover, but I think it's more of an ambush thing. Okay. You know, so they'll dip into that wood and they're just going to chill there until a sucker comes by or they need to move out into that, the area where the suckers are, because they're not far from the food. You know, there's, there's four things they don't want to do and that's, you know, they want to do, and that's not work too hard, find food, uh, you know, make more muskies. And then I guess it's three, but we'll, we'll go with three. Pretty simple life. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty simple life. Find the food, make more muskies, and not work. So if you can find, put all those three together, then you're probably going to find the fish. And it's more got to do with the food. And, the, and in the fall, they're just, the big females are just trying to make it through the winters, and they want to make sure their eggs have plenty of food to grow. So when it comes to making more, they're going to be, their eggs are going to be good. They're going to be in a healthy situation. So when spawn comes that um, they're, they're good to go. So it's more about putting the pounds on to make, to make sure those eggs are going to do, do good. And everyone thinks they just go in the fall feed bag. Well, it really, it's really to protect their eggs and to put more protein in them so they can make more and, and get, and get to the spring to, to lamb. So. So is fall kind of the hot time for musky? Like what's, what's the annual uh, like cycle of, of musky fishing? Yeah, I mean, um, post-spawn's pretty good. So they spawn pretty much like right before smallmouth. They're kind of a late spawner. They're not like pike right underneath the um, ice or, you know, the first things to spawn. They, they, they probably spawn, um, I used to know this off the top of my head, like, you know, uh, high 50s in there somewhere. It's in the book. I should have I should have had my notes. But... <laughs> no worries. Are they a little warmer than pike in general? Are, are they just a slightly warmer water fish? No, uh-uh. You can kill them pretty easy in the summer if you catch them when the water gets above 80. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's in the summer you'll fish a spring, you know, you're looking for springs and, and anywhere where cool water, they'll lay, they will lay up in a foot of water there if they're in the spring or trying to get cool. Huh, so, okay. Yeah, they, they don't like that real, you know, real like speedy dead water. They need, you know, they need a lot of oxygen and, um, you know, cold water to keep that, that metabolism going in those big fish. So, yeah, they're more. Probably more cold than a than a, than a bike, actually. So. 
And so then how, how does it progress through the summer and then into the fall? So post spawn's pretty good. And, oh, just the fact on the pike, which I found really interesting when I researched the book, is um, muskies grow bigger in lakes with pike than they do. They seldom get over 40 inches if there's no pike to, in that lake. or. Oh, river. why is that? that? That's definitely I the think, opposite of what I would have guessed. Yeah, you'd think that. And that's, it kind of shocked me. But um, I think the pike eat a lot of the fry. And so they make bigger fish, I guess. I, I, you know, there's less, they take out some of the biomass, I guess. At least that's my, that, that's the theory. Yeah, I guess I've heard similar, not, not necessarily uh, one fish affecting another, but like, you know, if you get a, if you get a bass pond, that has got some bass and, and panfish and uh, it's better if you do keep a couple of fish because that, you know, there's fewer fish in there competing for the same resources. So I wonder if, if maybe that's kind of the same thing, you know, if the pike thin out the muskies, the muskies have more resources per fish. Yeah, I mean, a musk eats a lot. I mean, and, you know, they're probably, they're always fighting. I mean, a musk will drill a small pike. I mean, that's, you know, I don't know if that's genetic and say, <laughs> you're the pike that ate my baby often, but they, they'll eat a pike pretty pretty handily. And we're, you know, I don't think a small pike is going to mess with the, you know, same size muskie maybe. I don't know, maybe they will, but I have, I've seen more muskies eat small pike than the other way around, I guess. Um yeah, so that's just kind of, it was just an interesting thing that I, that I found, you know, reading a bunch of, you know, research and things uh-huh. like that. It's pretty cool. But so, yeah, so post-spawn, back to the seasons. Post-spawn is kind of, um, they're coming off the spawn. They're pretty beat up. It's usually some pretty rough stuff going on. The males are all, I'm, it's hot here, so I have the windows open. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> anyway, so it's kind of, uh, it's kind of rough, and the males get really beat up fighting for, you know, their, their mates and stuff like that. So in the, in the, they, they just get beat up a little bit. So it's kind of a, they're real skinny and they're kind of gangly looking in the spring, but they'll, they'll eat. They're kind of on a rampage at post spawn thing. They're trying to get their energy back up and um, getting ready for the summer. So it's probably the number two time I would say to try to target a muskie um, is, is post spawn. And, and here we open up in June like the second weekend in June is when muskie season opens. So it's a, it's a month after the regular are here. Oh, so you actually have a muskie season that you're not allowed to target them outside. Yeah. 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 It goes from that second weekend in June, I believe, and then until the end of November. That's gotta be a pretty easy season to police. I've growing up, you know, we had seasons for fish, uh, but you know, where I was, there were so many species in the same area that if you just threw something small it'd be really hard for someone to argue that you were targeting you know a certain species if you caught you know a bass or a walleye right. or something like that but it's, it's pretty hard to say that you weren't targeting musky if you're throwing like a 10 inch streamer out there it's it's yeah. pretty narrowed yeah. down <laughs> kind of like the bull trout thing in montana right and yeah why are you throwing a you know 50 inch cutthroat flyer or something but, um, yeah if you, if you happen to catch one on a parachute atoms then that so be it but you're probably not yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you're not gonna well i've caught them on princes so i don't know go we'll figure that you know. oh the, the bull trout i assume not the muskies. yeah 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 not a muskie <laughs> that'd be pretty cool if i did that would be very very cool um but yeah so it's pretty easy to please and i, I think muskie anglers for the most part are probably more catch and release orientated than even trout guys. I mean, it's, I think the world record will be caught, but it'll never be registered. It'll just get put back in. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, I bet that's the case for a lot of species out there. You know, people just catch a big fish and they're, they're just so excited and don't, it doesn't even cross their mind that they should kill it and submit it 
to something, you know, they just right. appreciate it and send it back. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a special fish. I mean, that's a big, big old fish and there's not a lot of them. You know, there's one every hundred acres or something like that. So, I mean, it's not, there's not a lot of them out there. Um, Is it, do you think they live up to the reputation of 10,000 casts? Like how, how often are you catching them? Is, like when you're guiding people, how, how reliably can you assume that you'll be able to get a muskie to the boat in a given day of fishing? You'll get one to follow most days or look or maybe eat, but getting them to the boat is the, well, that's the easy part. You know okay. I mean? Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe I should have rephrased that. Cause I feel like if, you know, if I were a client of yours, I'd be happy if I had one on the line or, or hit my fly. I feel like at that point, it's my job to get it to the boat, but right. so, so you can pretty reasonably assume you'll get a bite. Yeah, you can go three days and not see one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll 11 in one day. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's musky. It's like permit. It's like blind permit fishing. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I've heard people say they've caught three in a day and then some people go, you know, years of trying without any luck. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of where it is. So I, you know, to sit here and go, you know, and if, you know, if someone comes up and say, how many days are I, I'd, I'd say, give yourself three days, you know, okay. cause you're going to blow the first one. You're, you know, the chances of you landing the very first muskie that eats that it's, it's a good muskie, not a, you know, not a regular musk, you know, a 30 inch or a 36 inch or um, anything over 40. I'm kind of a snob. I don't consider it a musky unless it's over 40. That's, that's me. That's not a client. If a client wants to catch a musky, that's great. But, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, I think all grouse should be shot over setters. And I think muskies over, aren't muskies unless they're over 40. So. Sure. <laughs> I think that comes with time too. The, the more you catch, you know, at some point, a fish of a certain size doesn't, doesn't really mean as much because you've, you've seen too many of them. Yeah. 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 So I'm, you know, that's, I've been chasing them and it, there's something just way different about a fish over 40 inches. That's funny you say that. Cause I've, I've landed exactly one muskie. It was on spin gear and it, it was totally by accident, but it was, it was 31 inches and it was probably the most exciting fish in my life. But, but that's because I've only caught the one. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm sure that would be Which just is cool. I mean, the, day. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I tell clients that what's your goal? I mean, you know, like it, you were a guide, you know, that, you know, if a client tells you, this is what I want to accomplish today, your, your day is a hundred percent better. Yeah. That's that. what you're working for. Yeah. So, okay. I know what I have to do. So if the guys, I just want to catch a muskie. Okay. Then we'll go to this per place. Cause there's more muskies. They're not as big, you know, or, okay. I want to catch one over 45. Okay. And we're going, you know, we're going here or this section or, or whatever. So it's, you know, you have to have a goal, I guess, to set out on, but that being said, I think you are going to, you know, most people do blow their first one. They just look at it and go, I can't believe that fish just ate my fly. And they just sit there and freeze. And then by the time they wake up, it's usually too late unless the fish commits suicide. But, and that's happened. I've, you know, seen it happen a bunch of times, but I've seen them blow up more than, you know, I've, I, I've blown them. I mean, everyone blows them. You're going to blow them. That's just part of the game. They, you know, they eat and they come at you. It's hard to get a hook in them. You know, that's, that's the hardest part of the whole game is trying to put a hook in them. So when you're, when you're trying to target these, you know, quote unquote trophy muskies, some of the bigger ones that, that surpass kind of the, the line you've drawn, is it kind of a, just a location thing? I know you said you'll go to places that have bigger muskies, but apart from going to the right location and maybe upping the fly size, is there any way to kind of weed out those smaller fish and, and strictly target the big ones? I'm thinking of like trout where, you know, if you throw on a two or three inch streamer, you've effectively eliminated 90% of the trout that are wherever you're fishing. Um, is, is that the same for muskies or is there a different way you're kind of targeting those larger ones? So there's a different way of doing it. It's mostly genetics and um, biology. So, 
the biggest muskies in the, I'm going to say in the United States, because Canada's got probably the biggest, but are, are Leech Lake strained muskies. They grow the fastest and they grow the biggest. And um, they're, they're just genetically superior to any other strain of muskies. And I'm saying that that's a, that's a Minnesota, Mississippi river fish. So I'm partial to that fish, but there is a reason, you know, they've done enough studies that um, those fish grow bigger and faster. And the other thing is water. If you're fishing smaller rivers and streams, then um, you're not going to grow as big, as big a fish. You just, you know, you need the biomass, you need the big waters and, that's why I say Minnesota is blessed. We have some of the biggest lakes and rivers that hold the, probably the biggest muskies in the lower 48. So we're pretty blessed that way. So that, that's what I think it comes down to. Now, if you wanted to go, you know, once again, it comes down to goals. I just want to catch a fish. Well, then there's plenty of, there's, and there's still big fish in those small streams or smaller systems than, than what we have. But if I'm playing the odds, I'm going to look for bigger water and a better fish. And I'm not saying that those other fish don't get to 50 inches because they certainly do. It's just that Minnesota ones grow a little bit bigger. And, mo- and the, those are the same ones that are up in like Lake of the Woods and, and, and that type of thing. And most of the states are now planting, if they are reintroducing um, the leech lake strains into, into their planting programs, which I don't know if I agree with that, but, you know, it's kind of like the native, you know, the brown trout versus the brook trout or that, you know, that type of thing. So you know, but everyone wants a big fish, right? So that's what pays the bills. And that's what's going to get put in that lake, I guess, or that river system. Yeah, it sounds like kind of the standard, the the very first step to catching a big fish is making sure you're in a spot where there are big fish. And then yeah. after that, it's a, it's a kind of a combination of, you know, using the right techniques, but also just kind of hoping for the best, knowing that you've put yourself in the best situation possible. Exactly. That's, you couldn't have done it, said it any better. I mean, you, you just... I always call it stacking the odds. So you want to start stacking your poker chips. If you want a 45 inch fish, this is what I need. So I'm going to put that chip in the table. Okay. I'm going to fish Mississippi river or Lake Malax or, you know, these big, big bodies of systems. Okay. So now I've got that. So now I need to maybe watch the weather or the season or, and you just start trying to stack as many poker chips as you can. So when you place the bet, your odds are better of cashing in than, you know, if you didn't. So going willy nilly. Okay. I know there's muskies in the river. Let's go float it and, 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 and catch one. Okay. You know, and that, that certainly is done every day, but you know, there's some really, really good biology out there right now. I mean, the, stu- must, the studies that I've read on muskies, it's doing research for the book. It was just amazing. I mean, they're putting, so in Duluth Harbor, which is, you know, no one's familiar with that. That's in the North, you know, it's on Lake Superior, and uh, the, there's a big river that comes in there called the St. Louis River, and there's some monster, monster muskies in that St. Louis, you know, like right next to the ore docks and things like that. It's just, but they're putting ships on them now, and they're following their movements out to the lake in the summer, and then, you know, they didn't think they left out to the lake, and they have little dingers all the way through the, you know, so they, when they pass a certain buoy, it dings, and, you know, so it's just really, really cool, cool stuff that that the biologists are doing right now. So is there, is there a noticeable difference in like average size between lake muskies and river muskies, or is it, is it just kind of location specific and, you know, sometimes you get monsters in the lake, sometimes you get monsters in the river and there's no real correlation um, to the, the type of water these fish are in. Yeah. I think for the most part, I think it's true with all warm water species that lake fish just get bigger. 
And I, you know, from my experience, I mean, there's certainly a ton of big fish in rivers, but you know, I always say they're on a treadmill all day. They're not going to get really fat and lazy, like, um, like a lake fish, you know, they don't have to work that hard. I guess that's true. I've never really thought of it that way, but yeah, it does make sense. And I think there's a lot, I mean, there's red horse, you know, in the rivers and they're a big fatty fish, but there's also, we have like a white fish species. We call it tulipy. That's kind of, it's a white fish basically on, on some of the bigger lakes. And I mean, those things are just greasy, oily fish that, you know, just throw on pounds. I mean, that's, that's how my friend Robert got his world record there. You know, th- those, those white fish or tulipies come into the rock bars when it gets like 39 degrees out the water temperature and you just start throwing big white flies at the rock bars and the, the muskies are right behind them because they're up spawning in the fall, you know? So, um, you know, you follow the food, you follow the fish, right? But that's, you know, I think some of the lakes have like bigger ciscos, greasier kind of fatty, you know, like the big Thanksgiving dinner every day, you know, where a river fish, they have certainly have those and they put, but not to the, not to the extent of those real productive big fish lakes do. That makes sense. I need to follow up on what you just said though. Your friend caught a world record. Yeah. So Robert, um, he owns the fly shop in Minneapolis or it's in St. Paul, I guess called Bob Mitchell's. Um, and he was with one of my guide, one of a guy that works for me and then another friend and he caught the world record on a fly. I think it's 58 inches or something like that. That's awesome. That's all on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. And um, the guy driving the boat is Musky G's, as I call him. <laughs> he hates that name, but um, the guy knows more about muskies than, you know, most people. He's just, he's unbelievable. That's his kind of, you know, that's his passion and he just lives and breathes it. So I feel like musky people are kind of their own breed. Like there's, I feel like when I hear about people who really are, are good at musky fishing, that's their, that's what they're doing almost all the time. Like they're not really yep. doing a lot of other fishing. Whereas someone like a trout or a bass fisherman, I feel like, you know, I'm happy to, I, I fish for trout a lot, but I'm happy to go fish for any other species as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, when a muskie and the fever bites, it's, it's bad. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's bad. So I don't, they're just too much work for me to, I mean, I love fishing them for the little bit I get to do it, but I don't think I could grind all summer and fall chasing muskies. I mean, it just, it would wear on me. I mean, I know how hard it is. And, but then again, that's probably what you have to do to be really, really successful. I mean, if you really want to catch a big, big fish. That's what it sounds like to me. That's that's what I've heard. And it goes along with the whole fish of 10,000 cats. I mean, it's it's right. hard to get good at something if you're only doing it very passively. And like I said, I've only landed one and I caught it when I was bass fishing. It, it was a fluke. And yeah. I do feel like it still lived up to the fish of 10,000 casts. That was probably my 20,000th cast on, on bass that led to that just you right. know, kind of mishap. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're just weird. They're weird cats that chase, you know, they're this, they're a different breed. I mean, they're just, they're like those really spooky brown trout guys. You know, those big streamer junkie brown trout guys that are kind of not quite just got a little, there's about one card short of a full deck, right? But I think, you, you <laughs> yeah, know, and I, really, I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, not disparaging because God bless them. I wish I could do it, but I just can't, I can't yeah. limit my, I guess, you know, I'd love to fish too. You know, I don't get to fish, you know, why do guides fish on their day off? Cause they don't get to fish, you know, any other time. So that's, that's their deal. So yeah. So if, you know, if the bass are biting, I'm going to go fish bass and try to catch you something on my day off i guess yeah so you said you you mostly fish bass uh small mouths right 
Yeah, I mean, that's probably from May till mid-September, and then from mid-September until ice is muskies. And then all of our, you know, part of March and most of April is trout. So I've, I've got a really, really, and then throw the April to May bluegill thing in there too. So I've got a really nice, you know, my season is just pretty cool, you know, because when I'm sick of trout, bluegills kind of kick in. And when I'm, you know, the bluegills are kind of done and then it's bass season. And then once I'm kind of tired of bass, boom, it's musky season. And then it's over, you know, and it's probably good that it ends with musky season and not begins with musky season my mental my mental state would probably not be the same it goes the way it does so yeah I feel you like I said I'm jealous of your situation because I I grew up spoiled with just a variety of species and and that's that's one of my favorite things of fishing is is casting out and not necessarily knowing what you're going to catch and just being able to you know indulge yourself in all different kinds of fish and fishing styles and what you're targeting and you know I grew up with that and now I'm pretty you know it's it's very deliberate what I'm doing now I'm either fishing for trout or I'm on warm water fishing for bass or fishing for panfish and I I really Mm -hmm. miss being able to kind of switch that up and you know if I'm if I'm doing warm water now it's kind of in in the city you know in a city pond or something like that because we don't have those big lakes like you guys do so yeah I'm really I'm really jealous of you on that front yeah, it's we're, it, we're like I said, we're always we're pretty blessed in the Midwest. People don't think it was a real good fly fishing destination, but if we had mountains, there'd be forty drift boats behind my house. Oh right yeah, now. <laughs> you know that's the only thing we don't have is mountains. So, so what what's the um, leader setup that you're using for muskies on the fly? Are you using a like a wire leader the same way gear fishermen would? Yep, yeah, I use the same thing, and they're real short, so I use probably three feet of Ah, uh, you know, 60 pound floral or, you know, you can use whatever you want. Um, but I usually use 60. If we're really hunting big stuff, I might bump it to 80, but I, that's kind of overkill. 40 to 60. And then I use about 18 to 20 inches of wire. And then I all bright that together and then glue that. And then um, on that, I put a snap on the end of the wire. I'll just do a three or four turn um clinch knot cinched out the bulk and stuff and then sometimes um i'll glue the top and then sometimes i'll crimp it with the sleeve if i'm making them ahead of time you know and then i'll just put a tag in a sleeve crimp it and then put a glue little glue on that but it's got to be a stay lock snap um and if you don't know what a stay lock snap is look it up um it's just a, it's s-t-a-y dash l-o-c and they're the best snaps and every other one will fail sooner or later and the stay locks Usually, you know, I I don't know if I've had one fail, um, but I've had some other weird ones that I thought would never fit stainless and big loops, and you know, the, they've come, they've, the fly has worked out or something some way. So that's pretty much it. It's it's real simple, and the reason they're so short is to work close to the boat. So you want to bring that fly line right to the tip, and then you always want to make the turn or do a figure eight. And if you have too long of a leader, you just can't. That fly will stall out in the nothing says this is not good to a muskie than a stalled stalled fly you know and that's usually what happens with guys with they see their first fish they'll be stripping it in and the muskie will get behind it and they just sit and stop stripping and look at the fish you know and then paula does not stop when a jaguar is chasing it right (laughs) that is very true yeah keep it moving you don't have to burn it you know but um you gotta keep doing what you were doing that that got his interest and you might, you know, and, and that just comes with lots of experience on how to read fish, how hot they are, or, you know, reading that fish to 
see what you should do to try to elicit the strike. And that's kind of, that's, that's magic. If you, if guys are good like that, it's pretty cool watching them just play that fish like a Stradivarius trying to get it to, to eat a, eat the fly. And most of the time it doesn't work, but when it does, you know, you just bump that a little different or you just, you know, you speed it up or slow it down and the fish will, you know, coil up and eat it. You know, and that's, that's kind of, that's, that's the best part about musket fishing. It's not the fight. It's not, it's just watching that big fish just devour your fly, you know, in its second. So are you usually seeing the eat? It's usually happening pretty close to the boat or do you ever get hooked up a little farther, like out of view and you just kind of feel it? Yeah. The best ones are you never see them, you know, cause you have a shot at them. You know, you don't know it. You know, I've had, I don't know how many guys I've said I'm hung up on a log, you know, and it's the fly lines, you know, running 10 feet up the river. And I'm like, that's no log. <laughs> it's too late. The thing's going to spit it. So the best are, you know, you strip, 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 and it just stops and you just drill it, you know, and like you think it's a log. I don't care. Just you strip set the heck out of it, you know, but I mean, yeah, you'll see quite a few of them, you know, you'll see, but I, you know, from a glide standpoint, I really don't, you know, I want you to see them, but when you see them, you usually blow it, you know, it's just kind of one of those. You're mesmerized. Deals. Yeah. You're just like, oh my God, he ate my fly. And then. And then they, they'll glide, you know, you, what you want is the fish to eat going away from you. So all you have to do is sit there and get it tight. It's caught. You know, I mean, it's, you know, not all the time, but that's the best scenario and that rarely ever happens. So usually they eat it and they're gliding at you and you have to kind of, if you're really, really good, which I don't know anyone that is that good is you just kind of just let them turn. They're not going to let the fly go once they have it or unless they feel something weird, you know, yeah. like you Strips that as they're running at you, and they're like, "This isn't quite right." If you just left it alone and let them swim, kind of quartering away and drill them, you you know. But no one can do that. I mean, if you're that good, you you know, quit the game, I guess. But it's kind of the same the same predicament that you get with like a dry fly, and you see a trout come up and take it. Like it's so easy to to set the hook too early because you see it coming, yep, and you're just yep. your nerves are going off, and yeah, you can't. The minute that it. fly bumps, you're setting the hook, right? It's mm-hmm. like a off under a popper, the same thing. The minute that popper moves a little bit, you're setting the hook where you weren't even close to setting a hook on them. So, yeah. but, you know, the excitement, you know, you've just cast, you know, your fly rod for six hours and haven't seen a damn thing. And then all of a sudden this behemoth comes off the bottom and drills your fly in front of you. And you're just kind of like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> yeah. You're just ready for anything at that point. Yeah. 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 You know, and you're just like, oh my, you know, and it just, it's all mental. The whole game is all all mental basically it's between your ears if you don't stay in the then you're shot you're done so when you're when you're um getting to fly close to the boat are you figure eighting every time or is that only if you've got a follow already and you're just kind of trying to elicit that that bite hopefully um or does it does it matter if if you don't see a fish you still doing that yeah yeah you're at least you know i being a guide and doing it for so long I know the reality. I want a guy to figure it after every cast. You know, I know that after three hours of figure eating and not seeing anything, it's not going to happen. You know, and the minute it doesn't happen, that's when the fish is going to show up. So I just say, just turn it for me. Give me a J turn or change direction. Just do something, you know, something different because they'll follow that thing 10 feet underneath it and you go to turn it. Um, and it's like, oh my God, it's getting away. I got to get on it. And boom, you've got a fish behind it. Mm-hmm. You know? So that change of direction, the change of speed, it's usually a change of speed too, when you're picking it up. 
I had a client years ago caught a 45 inch fish, literally ate the fly out of the water. Like jumped up? It was picking it up to cast and the thing ate it like a foot out of the water. Oh, gee, that must have been exciting. Yeah. And if you went to hook it, he would have fell out of the back of the boat because he screamed like a little girl. I mean, just a, <laughs> ah, he's a big guy, too. It's pretty funny. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, he got lazy and he picked it up ahead of time, 10 feet away from the boat. And, you know, as he's picking it up, you're moving direction, you're moving, you're changing speeds. And the fish triggered, ate it out of the water and, you know, the rest is history. But so, yeah, so that little turn or those figure eights um, are very, very, very important. You know, and I know it's a just, I, you know, I'm a realist. I know that a client can't do a figure eight all day unless he's really, really into it. You know, so some guys say, I want to go musky fishing. Okay. You know, you have to figure eight and then, you know, they'll last about an hour and then it's, you know, picking it up and throwing it. I'm like, you got to move it. You got to turn it. You know, you just, you got to do something for me. You know? So. Is is there any sort of pattern as to like where you get most of your hits? Like are, are most of them on these kind of blind figure eights where there's no fish in sight and you just do it and hope for the best or are most of your hits kind of once you've seen a fish or or just when you're stripping it back in like how, how what percentage of of your fish are on those blind figure eights where it's just kind of you know hoping for the best and yeah, it, it works out i'm probably different from most but i i only fish fall like in the summer i bet you over like 70 percent of them are on an eight you know if i'm talking to my gear friends and that type of thing there it might be 80 to 90 percent on a figure eight wow okay that's in the summer when they're real moody, they'll follow They're That's why I don't fish them because they're just, they're hard enough in the fall. They're just twice as hard. They're a little more active probably, you know, as far as because of warmer water temperatures and stuff, but they're eating probably a little bit more, but um, it seems in the fall that they don't follow and they eat, you know, they still follow. Don't get me wrong, but the percentages of eating at the boat drop, you know, markedly in the fall. And that's good because most, more stuff can go wrong next to a boat than out away from me. Yeah, I feel like if you're just stripping it in, there's there's not much you can do wrong if you're just pulling it in and they grab it and yank. Right, yeah. If they eat it like you want them to eat it, you know, quartering away, pretty tough to blow that one. But mm-hmm. most of the time, they come at you and, you know, it's it's hard. But And then there's just not a lot of stripping ability on the figure eight. You know, you almost have to pin them and then just, you know, it's game on. But when they eat it on the eight, it's usually pretty pretty aggressive they'll nip at it and stuff sometimes but they'll never eat it you know you'll see them behind it chop make you know they're you can hear them chomping you know you can hear their jaws clacking as they're following up it's it's a really weird aggressive um thing and some of those fish eat some don't but you know my experience when they're chopping they usually don't eat but i, I bet another guy would probably say the total opposite but it's you know you can hear them clacking their jaws under the water sometimes you can see the jaws moving and they're you know, three inches from your fly and you're like, okay, eat it, eat it, eat it. And they, you know, and then you got to turn it and then they, they'll do maybe follow a couple turns and then they maybe peel away. But, and you keep going because sometimes they'll peel away or start on the boat and just sit there, you know, and then you maybe do a sudden move or a bigger turn. And, mm-hmm. and I've seen a lot of YouTube videos of guys figuring fish and it's like, they're trying to whip up eggs in the morning. I mean, it's just, it's slow it down, big wide circles. Cause if you think if it's a big fish, that's a lot of body to turn. And if they're doing really, really tight figure eights, it's making it real difficult for that fish to, to um, turn and follow. So uh, like they're kind of waiting of the, for an opportunity for that, for that yeah. prey to, you know, pre- present itself. 
Right. And if you got a real small figure eight or a real small circle, they're just trying to, you know, what's going on? You know, they're just, mm -hmm. they can't turn that fast. I mean, they're, that's a big ship, you know, it's an aircraft carrier trying to turn them <laughs> Yeah, they probably, they're not as agile. Right, they are. I mean, when they eat, it's pretty incredible, but it's still a big fish, right? And one of the, one of the guys up in Canada I talked to was really interesting. They just do a big, huge circle, you know? So, I mean, it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. I mean, just, you just have to change directions. It also changes depths. So if I'm doing an eight, I usually go deep when I'm pulling it towards the boat. And then when I come around, I'm picking it up and coming shallower and then moving it faster and swinging it out. It just seems to be a little easier that way. And it, as it's coming directions and speed, it's changing directions and speed, they'll sometimes T-bone it going away from you. So that's kind of how I do it, why I do it that way. Now, do you know how uh... – regular muskies differ from something like a pike or a tiger muskie because i don't even think we have too many muskies out here in colorado but we do have quite a few areas that have tiger muskies and a lot that have pike um i feel like it's pretty easy to think of them all the same way and but are they pretty similar or no. are, are they pretty distinct pike are pretty they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer you know i mean <laughs> you know they're just, they're just savages you know they don't they don't I mean, I, I, I'm sure big ones, you know, we just don't have a big pike, pike population here. I mean, a large pike. We have a ton of pike, but they're all small. And the DNR certainly try to rectify that. But uh, um, tigers, I hear, are pretty tough. They're like a regular muskie. Okay. You know, you'd be a little easier. Um, one of my old friends used to fish him. He did a lot of, he took a lot of photos and stuff for me in the book. And um, he used to fish them out in Curlew and in Idaho and some other stuff out that way, but, um, they can get pretty darn moody, just like a muskie. So I would think, and then, um, I talked to a guy from Salt Lake that fishes a lot of tigers and yeah, same thing. They're just muskies with prettier stripes, I guess, you know, they're pretty cool looking fish. I think that makes sense for what I've heard. I, I feel like I, you know, hear about people catching pike on the fly all the time, and it's not necessarily mm -hmm. that big a deal. But I, I don't regularly hear my friends talking about catching tigers, even though we have them out here. Yeah, um, they, they seem to be the the more intellectual of the of the right. pike family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, big pike are pretty tough. I mean, that's you know, a it's like a big bluegill or big anything. You got to find them. You got, uh -huh. you know, they're they're pretty heat sensitive too. Once it warms up, they get pretty deep. It's pretty tough to get them on the fly. So I mean, it's usually early post spawn or type of stuff when you get those big giants i know colorado's got some huge huge pike i've talked to landon meyer about it and he was asking me about it and i go oh i'd like to come out and do that but you know some of those reservoirs got some big big pike in them yeah and in a lot of the cases there i know there's at least one or two that will uh pay you to keep the pike because that you know they are kind of detrimental to, to everything else that's in there um, sure. I'm not sh I'm not sure where all it is, but I know there's a couple of places where they they really want to get rid of the pike, and they they will offer yeah. anglers a reward for keeping them. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, you know, I know the Clark's Fork through Missoula down below. It's got a really really good pike population. You know, and they get big. You know, most, there's you know, I'm talking to a few guys out there that have that have um, targeted them in the spring in the back sloughs and stuff like that. I mean, guys have really big ones. So I mean, if they're eating trout all day, they got to be you know getting pretty big, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Especially also if, if they're not in a location that has, I, you know, I feel like the only predator to a pike really in the water would be a muskie. And if, if those aren't yeah. present, I feel like the pike can just kind of run rampant and, and do whatever they want and grow as big as they want without, without right. any worry. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. 
Awesome, Kip. Well, um, do you just want to plug your your book and um, your outfitter or anything before we finish up? Just so sure. if anyone's interested in coming with you or, or buying the new book. Yeah, it's um, the name of the uh, service is Wildwood Float Trips. We're out of Monticello, Minnesota. We live right on the on the banks of the Catch and Release section of the Mississippi River. For um, well, it's Catch and Release now for muskies from the whole way down too. So um, and and smallmouth. And then um, the book is available October first, and it's Orvis Guide to Muskie on the Fly, and it's uh, it's a good primer for um, if you're thinking about getting into the sport or chasing them. It'll kind of you know it'll flatten the learning curve curve. I hope a lot. Um, I've, a lot of good friends helped me with it. Um, that that I've learned a ton, a ton of stuff from over the years, and without them, I couldn't have, couldn't have done it. So it's a pretty cool community as far as musky fishermen and guides. It's pretty tight-lipped and it's pretty close, and uh, it's just a lot of respect out there for the people that have done it and the people that have taught me. You know, I got I kind of got drug into it, you know, years ago by a friend. So, um, but it's a cool cool fish to chase, cool people that do it, and. Uh, it's a pretty eclectic group. So if you've ever thought about it, I would, I would encourage you to reach out to somebody that has, and uh, they can probably walk you through or get the book. It's, it's hopefully helpful. Well, I think, I think anyone who wants to chase muskie is, is probably going to need quite a bit of help to get started. Cause you know, considering something like a normal trout fly fishing book, you know, usually most people have a little bit of background, but I, you know, if I, if I were starting muskie fishing right now, I would be starting from square one. And I bet a lot of fly anglers are in the same boat. So um, I definitely encourage anyone who is interested in getting started musky fishing to, to check out that book and um, hopefully picked up a lot of tips from from what you've been describing here because it, it does sound really exciting to do. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. <laughs> I think that's probably um, part of the reward too, though, is uh, yeah, really feeling like yeah, you earned it. When your elbow's ready to fall off, I mean, you know, that's, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool when it happens. All right, Kip. Well, um, I really appreciate you kind of walking me through this because I, I really I didn't know what to expect going into it, but it, it does sound like a ton of fun, and I, I really appreciate your help and um, the tips you've given today. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation to come on your podcast. It's a lot of fun. All right, and that is all. As always, if you liked what you heard, I'd love for you to go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe there. Uh, if you've got a couple extra minutes, a rating or review would also be much appreciated. It doesn't take too long, and it makes a big difference on my end. You can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com, in addition to fly fishing articles every two weeks. And you can find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert, on Go Wild or at fishuntamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. Bye, everyone. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.